Turn with me to John chapter 16. We're going to finish the 16th chapter this morning. Hard to believe we're coming to the end of this upper room discourse. We still have the prayer of Jesus that kind of finishes it all in chapter 17. But we're uh, finishing the 16th chapter here this morning. We'll pick up with where we left off, which is verse 25. We finished verse 24. So starting in verse 25... John chapter 16, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I should pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world, again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. This culminating verse, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that indeed Jesus has overcome all things in this world. And we thank you, Lord, that we have your word. We have the entire treasure of this upper room discourse. We pray this morning that you would remove everything else from our mind, every other distraction, settle us, quiet us, still us. Let us eat from your table. Let us hear from you with soft hearts, with prepared hearts, with ready ears, desiring to apply what it is you are counseling and commanding to us. We thank you for your words. They are life to us. Lord, I pray that each and every person is transformed here this morning. You'd remove me once again from the equation that we would hear from you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Jesus created the world. We understand that. He saw this world when it was sinless and perfect. You and I have never seen that. He saw the moment that sin came in and corrupted this world and everything within it. By the will of the Father, Jesus came miraculously and willingly into this world take on the human flesh of a newborn baby. He then walked the earth for 33 years, the last three of which he spent teaching and preaching that the Father had sent him because God so loved the world. And the demonstration of that love was that Jesus would bring salvation to the world starting with the house and nation of Israel, that little strip of land from the Mediterranean to the Jordan. But the world, the leaders of this world, 
had already rejected Jesus. You guys agree with that? They'd already rejected Jesus. This rejection, the night of the upper room discourse, was only intensifying. They, the rulers of this world, were now only hours away from killing Jesus. And of course, Jesus, well, he wasn't just being killed. He was laying down his life. He could have been somewhere else. He could have brought judgment. He was laying down his life for the world, even for those people that hate him and hated him. The disciples, well, he had already found them. He had chosen them. He had saved them out of the world. He told them earlier in the night in John 15, 19, that they were no longer of the world. How many of you know you're no longer of the world? That's what he told them. He said, you're no longer of the world. You might have a Virginia driver's license, but this is not your home. Though obviously the disciples were still in the world, and we're still in the world. He tells them here once more that he is now leaving this world. But everything he has done throughout the night of this upper room discourse is to prepare them. He has been methodically preparing them. Because not only will they remain for a little while, remember that phrase last week he used? A little while in this world, but he's going to send them out into the world with that very same message and the witness that Jesus himself proclaimed. That, of course, being sent out into this world not only seems daunting, it is daunting, right? It's daunting to go out into this world. When you consider the world that they were in and we're now in, that they were sent to and we're now sent to, a world that's rejected Jesus, just the sheer size of this planet, the complexity of it, the cultural differences, the political opposition, the political pre uh, just pressure and persecution, the sheer complexity of all these things. I mean, how do you reach 1.3 billion people in India? How do you reach 1.4 billion in China? How do you reach the Muslim world? How do you reach the Hindu world? How do you reach an atheist? How do you reach Roman soldiers that want to kill you? Whatever. It doesn't matter what time of world history you've been in. But Jesus is assuring them, against all that backdrop, he's saying, you don't need to concern yourself with the size of the mission. Isn't that good to know? He's like, I want to take the pressure off of you. They'll have the love of the Father via the presence of the Holy Spirit, who's called the Helper, living within them. You actually have God. If you're saved, you have God living in you. God living in you. The one that spoke the universe into existence, that God. And oh, by the way, that intimidating world, where do you start? Jesus reminds them, and he reminds us that he has already overcome the world. Isn't that good to know? He's already overcome the world. In fact, even before he came, he had already overcome the world. Isn't that great? Even before he came, it was a done deal. That's why it was prophesied. And soon they're going to know and they're going to believe 
on a level of faith they've not yet experienced because of what? The resurrection. The resurrection, the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. You were taking notes this morning. You see the title, Christ Alone Has Overcome the World. Christ Alone Has Overcome the World. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure you're all in the same boat as me on this. But even though I know that by the work of grace and forgiveness, I've already been saved out of the world, and that Jesus has already conquered the world, and that you and I can be overcomers in this world to, agree, to a degree that's beyond what we think, I still sometimes question, Lord, can I get the job done? Right? You ever feel that way? But he wants us to be reminded that everything he said here is still in effect right now. Amen? Everything he said here is still in effect. It can't be altered. It is for eternity. We can stand on these promises. Amen? Amen. So let's look back at verse 25. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language. Jesus is coming to the end of this upper room discourse. But the figurative language and these things, as he says that term, these things, refers primarily to what he has just said, such as he was leaving in a little while. We know that that little while is first and foremost his death and the three days in the grave. A little while, three and a half days from this moment, they would see him face to face. But he said a little while. He compares his climatic departure and their sorrow to labor pain. Labor pains of a mother at the end of that pregnancy. And the joy that they will see when they see him, he compares... Although he didn't say that, he just used the figurative language of the birthing process and the deep pain. And then when the mother receives the baby and sees that little face, that all the pain she's experiencing just kind of melts away seeing that little angelic face. And Jesus says, when you see my face, although he didn't say it, he's using the figurative language. When you see me post-resurrection, you're gonna, everything else is going to melt away because you're going to say, he's risen. But he spoke figuratively. He didn't, he didn't, we know this now in hindsight. They did not know that in the way he was explaining it. So he spoke figuratively as well about him being the vine and them being what? The branches. That was earlier in the evening. The figurative language is based upon the Father shrouding the atoning work of Jesus' death and his resurrection even preventing the disciples from fully understanding all Jesus has said. Some of us are like, why, why did Jesus sometimes uh, veil them? Why, why did he sometimes not, or if the Father, keep them from fully understanding at every moment? Some have proposed that God the Father did this to keep them from giving up prior to the victory of the cross and the resurrection. That had they fully understood, they might have said, I'm out. That's too much. I think that's there's some truth to that. God shields us from a lot of things that we'd say, if I knew that was coming, I'm out. 
We don't know, but even we know that even on some occasions that Jesus spoke literally, not figuratively, times that he spoke literally concerning his death and resurrection, it was still veiled at times from their understanding. I have up on the screen Luke chapter 18. Here's a great example of this. Jesus doesn't speak figuratively here. He's 100% literal. He says, for he, speaking of himself, because he says the Son of Man, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles, that would be Pilate and the Romans, and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. All that will happen. They will scourge him. That will happen. And kill him. That will happen. And the third day he will rise again. He doesn't say figuratively. He doesn't say a little while. He says the third day. But they did not understand. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. and They did not know the things which were spoken. Nonetheless, Jesus says, a time is coming. So they didn't understand that. But Jesus says, a time is coming. There's going to be a sharp change. He will speak plainly. It appears he'll speak more plainly, more often more plainly. And he's going to remove the figurative language. He'll provide additional revelation, which we get in the epistles, for example. They're very straightforward. More application, although Jesus had a lot of application as well. Specifically, though, he's speaking of the Father, that I'm going to reveal the Father directly to you. And the implication here is that they'll have an expanded ability to understand what he will say and reveal. You, you know this is true in your own life. Most of you probably could understand certain classes better when you were like 18 than when you were one month old. Right? There's a maturing. God brings us to a place you can now understand. And most of you could probably be given more responsibility at the age of 25 than you could at the age of five. Right? God says, all right, now you've learned more. I will bestow more on you. You have more responsibility, and with more responsibility comes more accountability. Right? They're going to reveal. They're going to understand more. Let's not forget that the reason this will be the case, especially as it relates to the Father, remember that the entire night's discourse is in view, not just the last couple of minutes. The whole night of Jesus speaking is in view. The helper is going to be the one who's going to open their eyes and increase their understanding. Brother and sister, the helper is going to be the one that's going to help you and I have more understanding. Amen? We can't manufacture more understanding about God. It comes from God. It's kind of put like the cup under the, uh, the, the spigot. It has to come in. You can leave it there all day, but unless the faucet is turned on, it will sit empty. And so God is the one that gives us, in parts, understanding. You can have really brilliant people. It doesn't matter how smart you are. Uh, high IQ has nothing to do with learning from the Holy Spirit. That's why you have atheists that the Bible says are fools. They have a high IQ. They may be part of Mensa and all this other stuff, and they have a high IQ, but God says they're a fool because they won't even believe what he says. But then you can have someone who has a low IQ 
They get saved, and all of a sudden, God can use them mightily, and they can actually expound on the scriptures. Even the, uh, the uh, religious leaders said, these are untrained men, right? But they had the power of the Holy Spirit. So the helper was going to open their eyes so the things that were figurative, such as Jesus even saying, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, figurative, all these things would be revealed. They will be illuminated. By the way, for us as believers, going back to with what I opened with, Jesus is certainly with us right now. If you're saved, he is sustaining you. He is the one helping you to grow. He is keeping us right now. But he is always, and even at this very moment, he is preparing us for a time to come. Did you know that? You're being prepared, and it's not all big, not all bad things either. Some of you young people, he's preparing you right now for marriage. No one should say that's a bad thing here, by the way. None of y'all should say that. We just had a wedding here yesterday. From young people, he's preparing you for marriage. He's preparing you for future responsibility. He's preparing you that someday you're going to lead. He's preparing you that someday you're going to open your mouth and you're going to witness to someone you never thought you'd have an opportunity to. But he's also preparing us for difficult times. Opportunities. Mark talked about serving as opportunities. Everyone gets opportunities. And everyone gets challenges. And everyone gets trials. But he's preparing us for all those things. And aren't you glad they're not all one thing? Like if they were all trials, we would all bail. But a lot of them are really good things. He's preparing us for an opportunity to train someone, to disciple someone, to encourage someone. He might be preparing you right now to be an encouragement to someone who is about to throw in the towel. So he's always preparing. It's been well said. Now, we do have the difficulties. Jesus doesn't flinch this whole night. He has told them, hey, these things, you're going to suffer some persecution. He said that earlier. But it's been well said that a person can endure things when they believe there's a purpose for what they're enduring. Amen? When they know there's a purpose for it. The pain and difficulties. Our purpose, all of you, if you're a believer, if you're watching online or you're here that you're a born-again believer, your purpose, my purpose is the same in this respect. All of us have a purpose to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Amen? All of us. Everything he's doing is always molding us and shaping us. Paul said, not that I've already attained, even if, as a, later in life, I love that Sam was saying, when he was here, he goes, I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. Still learning. But to conform to the image of Jesus right now, but also for his will tomorrow and the next day and the next week. Look at verse 26 as we move forward here. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that you I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. Jesus goes on and he says, in that day. Some of that day is just days away. And that day. Some of that's just days away. Resurrection is going to be a whole new day. Amen. We call it the Lord's Day. But it's not only that day, it's inclusive of that day, but it's beyond just that day. When Jesus says in that day, because we're in a different day, but it still speaks to us, amen? Does that make sense? We're in that day. 
But also that day was the resurrection, and it's inclusive. Remember, Sam, he did a great job of talking. When he was here, he said that the, the latter days, that we've been in the last days, there's nothing left on the prophetic calendar for Jesus to come. We've been in that Ever since then, he could come at any moment. We're not waiting. If this, ha well, doesn't uh, doesn't Magog have to do this first? No, nothing has to happen on the prophetic calendar. But some of that day is days away. Others, other portions are are many days away. But in that day, what will, what will we see take place? It'll be a time of new revelation and increased understanding. Again, the veiled things will be more understandable to them. Oh, this, this is why he said the three days, this is why he said he would be crucified. Now we get all that stuff, but many other things. And he says they'll begin to ask in Jesus' name. As it was with his imminent departure and the coming of the Holy Spirit, learning to ask in Jesus' name was one of the prominent themes of the evening. You guys remember, we've heard him say this, a number of times, that you will ask in my name, that you will ask in my name. Matter of fact, this marks the sixth time, you probably weren't taking uh, a numerical count of it, but this is the sixth time that he's referenced to the disciples that they would be asking in his name. Very specific, that you'll be asking in my name. Of course, we know that we ask in his name because we do not take lightly his name, we have a high reverence for his name, so when we ask in his name, we want to ask things that are according to God, not just our own personal preferences. We kind of say, Lord, filter that out of me. But asking is not always the same exercise. Just any two questions are not the same. We can ask questions out of complete misunderstanding, which the disciples have asked a number of questions, like they didn't have a clue. So it was a complete misunderstanding. Lord, we have no idea what you're talking about. Right? That's a question, but not all questions are the same type of questions. Not all the same, not the same kind of asking. As they mature, as they grow, as they will soon receive the Holy Spirit, he's going to breathe the Holy Spirit upon them after the resurrection, then the uh, baptism of the Spirit will come later. But they'll begin to pray in the name of the soon-to-be-risen Jesus. Now, he already knows he's going to rise. They don't know he's going to rise. They don't even know he's going to die, even though he's told them. But they'll be praying in the risen name of Jesus. They'll be asking from a totally new place of understanding, a totally new place of faith, a totally new place of revelation. Now, ah, he came to die and rise from the dead, just like he said there in Luke that we did not see. So they'll be asking from a new place. They'll be on a different plane. They will be asking from a place of understanding, not a place of misunderstanding. Does that make sense? It'll be less of why Lord questions and more of because you are Lord questions. That makes sense. If you've had kids, not all questions are the same. They might say, why do I have to do this? That's a question. Totally different question would be something like this. What can I do for you? Some parents would faint right there. You know, they... they <laughs> They would fall out right there. They're like, who stole my kid, right? Why do I have to do this is a question, but Lord, what would you have me to do, right? 
Because God wants us to say, here I am, Lord, send me. That's, what he, that's the kind of questions he wants us to mature to, not, I don't understand this, why again, why this, why that? Because I had a couple times this week while I was whining and complaining, I had the Holy Spirit say, did I not call you to wash feet? And I love that he gave us a visual representation. And it snapped me out of my own selfish mind. And it was not a why, but okay, Lord, how long do you want me to do this? Where do you want me to do it? Why do you want me? Whatever. And Jesus says, I don't say that I shall pray to the Father for you, here in verse 26, what is he saying here? I'm not going to say that I... He says, I don't say that I shall pray to the Father for you. What is he saying here? Well, in the resurrection and the victory on the cross, something amazing takes place, and you guys have heard this or read it directly in the Gospels. When Jesus says it is finished, the veil of the temple rips in two. The only person that could go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he better go in there with every sin confessed, right? <laughs> Just like, don't take it. Now, n even the high priest never went in with perfection, but sincerity, like, you, you do your best. Even when you pray, say, Lord, even things I'm forgetting, please have mercy on me. God will look favorably upon that. You'll never have to worry about perfection in the presence of God, but he does look at the heart, Amen. So the heart. And then so one, but none of them were the high priests. These guys weren't the high priests. The disciples weren't. That once a year, but when the veil was torn in two, something changed. Something significant changed. And then that veil torn in two, they and the disciples, they no longer now, of course, Jesus still is our mediator between God and man. But Jesus is saying here, he goes, You're gonna have direct access to the Holy of Holies. You're going to be able to go directly in and talk to the Father in the Holy of Holies because I have opened up that opportunity for you to go right in and say, Father, hear my prayer. Amen. We'll have direct. We do have direct now into the Holy of Holies ever since that veil was torn. Verse 27, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from God. Everyone that truly loves the Son of God is loved by God the Father. Let me say that again. Everyone that truly loves the Son of God is loved by God the Father because it would be impossible to love the Son of God if you haven't believed in the Son of God because Jesus says it right here. He says, because you have believed that I came forth from God. The only reason anyone can love the Son is they first believed in the Son and via the grace and the truth given by the Father who sent the Son, then we can believe and love him. But the disciples, they first believed what Jesus said. They first believed Jesus' witness. They first believed Jesus' testimony. And now God has given them, because they believed in Jesus, they believed the words of Jesus, God has given them a love and a growing love for his son. I told the 830 service, I said, before I got saved, I mean, I grew up, like many of you, I went to church as a kid, but then when I got to be 
college age. I didn't step foot in a church for like four years. I just did. I had no care. The last place I wanted to be on a Sunday morning, because I live in South Florida, was in a church. There was volleyball to be played. There was surfing to be happening. There was fun stuff going on. I did not want to get up, get my Sunday best on, and drive to church. How boring. That had no appeal to me whatsoever. Late nights were appealing to me. All the fun stuff of the world. But I had, there was nothing appealing to me about, I want to go sing to Jesus. And I didn't even have Jesus cross my mind hardly ever. I don't, many of you probably remember, Jesus did not cross my mind, although God was still, you know, hitting me here and there. And, and, but, I mean, ge- in general terms, I was thinking about making money, finishing my degree, doing this. I was not thinking about Jesus, but he comes and finds us, right? And then, all of a sudden, when you really know the Lord, you start to love Jesus, and you start to think about him constantly. And Jesus is reminding the disciples that they've been brought into the same love that God has for his son. God gives us a love for the son. This is even after salvation. Like, that love continues to grow. How many of you endeavor to love your spouse more than you used to? Of course, I don't care how long you've been married. You would want to grow in that. And so the same is true in our relationship with God the Father. Jesus said, you're going to grow in this. But that love is extended without measure only to those who are born into the Son. Let me ask you, are you experiencing the love of God? Those of you online, are you experiencing the love of God? Is it causing you to love the Son more? Is it causing you to love others? Is it causing you to love the body of Christ? Because all of that is the love of the Father. Verse 28. I came forth from the Father, and I've come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. So Jesus declares here the source of his mission. He says, I've come from the Father. That's the source. The throne room, heaven, the Father's house, that's the source where he's come from. That's the source of his mission. But he also, in the same sentence, he reiterates the completion of the mission in one statement. Because he says, I have come from the Father into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. The full circle, the source, the completion, all of it. This ties back to why Jesus came. Why did he come? Everyone, even a lot of people that don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, have heard this verse up on the screen. Lots of people know John 3.16, but the 17th is very important. Well, the whole chapter is important. So read the whole third chapter. It's all good, and it's all important. But this is the why. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes. It's not enough to know the name of Jesus. You have to believe on the name of Jesus. It's not enough to, well, I believe he was a historical figure. No, that doesn't help. Believes in him. Not, a, not about him. Not that, you know, how he was a good prophet. No, no. In him as Savior, that they should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The world was already condemned. We understand that, right? He came because the world was condemned. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to release the condemnation. Everyone right now that doesn't believe in Jesus is already condemned. 
They are on their way. He calls it, Jesus called it the broad road to destruction. Narrow is the way to eternal life. Few there be that find it. Why? Because Jesus, he was the way. He was the narrow way. Not all religions get you to heaven. And they're not all the same. They don't even all agree with each other. As I said many times, all roads do not lead to New York City. Try driving I-10 West. You will not get to New York, I promise you. You might get to L.A., but you're not going to get to New York. So he came because the world was already under condemnation. The why was to save. The why was to redeem. But in addition to the internally important of why Jesus came forth, his statement here declares the foreordained nature of it, that his mission was a guaranteed completion. Don't you love that? It was guaranteed to be, when Jesus said it is finished, it was finished. But even before he said it was finished, it was guaranteed to be finished. Amen? I've said many times, and I know that I've said this a lot over the years, but still bears repeating. You and I cannot guarantee the completion of anything. Right? We can say, I will be there at six, and all kinds of things can prevent that from happening. You're not going to believe this. I got COVID today. You're not going to believe this. The school bus broke down in front of it. You're not going to, you know, whatever. We can't keep some things because we have very, we have limitations. Not Jesus. He can part Red Seas if he wants to. But more importantly, he has the power to lay down his life and come. So when he says, I left the Father, I'm going back to the Father, he said, this is a done deal. You guys don't even know the next three and a half days are going to be really rough on you until I raise, but all doesn't matter. It's going to happen, and I'm going to complete it. And for all intents and purposes, it already is complete. Amen? Amen. Dr. J. Vernon McGee said this about this verse 28. He said, this verse is bigger than Bethlehem. It is wider than space. It reaches back into eternity beyond the boundaries of space to the throne of God. Then it speaks of those few moments he spent on this earth. He came in, out of eternity and went back into eternity. Aren't you glad Jesus stepped into eternity? You're not here this morning, or you have no reason to be here this morning if he didn't, but he did. And I'm so glad that he did, and we can see that the disciples, they feel the same way. Their sorrowful hearts, remember they've had a kind of up and down evening, and a lot of sorrow throughout the evening, kind of underbrewing there, that Jesus is leaving as he said a number of times. But here they seem to have a burst of joy and enthusiasm with what Jesus seems to have conveyed in these past few verses. And I'm not sure why it hits them like it does, but that's just the work of the Lord. And you can see their response and look at verse 29 and 30. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. There's not a parable. There's not a hidden thing. Now we are sure that you know all things. Shouldn't they have known that by now? Um, I mean, he read their mind lots of times. And have no need that anyone should question you. That's been well played out, too. He's, he's handled every question and then some. By this, we believe that you came forth from God. The disciples are not perfect men. Nobody is. But if you're taking notes, let me give you four things, just observations about them. Um, number one, they've been changed. They're not who they used to be. I mean, Peter, 
Yes, he's still hard charging. But he used to would have already knocked a couple people out. So he's come a long way, right? Now he speaks his mind with some reservation. Number one, the, all these men have been changed. They really have been changed. They, they are not cussing fishermen anymore. They are followers of Jesus. And they really have done, I mean, they've gone out, sent two by two. They've cast out demons. They have done amazing things for the Lord. They really do love Jesus. They've been changed. But number two, this is important for all these, by the way, apply to us too. Number two, they're being changed, right? They've been changed. And they're being changed. Is that true of all of us? Yes. yes. That's why you're here this morning. That's why I'm here this morning. I get changed even when I have to prepare and teach. God matures me. Vice versa. Number three, they're still learning. They're still learning. We're all lifelong learners, or we're supposed to be. Amen? They're still learning. The only one that doesn't have anything to learn is God. The rest of us, I even believe, will keep learning in heaven. How about y'all? Because God has an, there's nothing you can teach him, but he can teach you for, forever. There will never be an end. Just like he has no beginning, no end, we will be learning forever. So they've been changed. They're being changed. They're still learning. Number four, they have a love for Jesus and for truth. They have a love for Jesus. But that only happens if you've been changed. If you've not been changed, you don't want truth. And by the way, even when we really have been changed. There's lots of times, I'll come back to that point in just a second. Let me, let me hold that. But truth, for those that really want truth, has a way of melting away our fears and concerns. And, and not every, I'll come back to that point too, not everybody wants truth. And why? Because when you have truth, you have to respond to it. And so, even in small things, you're like, I don't even want to know how many calories are in that. <laughs> but you pretty much have a good idea that it's not 12, that it's probably 1,000, right? So you say to yourself, I just don't even want to know how many calories are in that slice, but I'll take two, right? <laughs> but you know the number is pretty high. But you stick head in sand and fork in it, right? I do it too, right? We all do that. We just don't want to know the truth. It's better if we don't know it, we're not accountable for it. We don't know that it has 1,200 calories. We kind of know, but we don't know the exact number, so we didn't know. And it said it was organic, so that, that covers everything. But when... The disciples, because they now love truth, when you really receive truth, it has a way of melting our fears and concern. When you really want truth, it's super helpful. Amen? Like the gospel melted away our fears because we're like, wow, this is truth that saves me, not truth that's condemning me. The world was already condemned. This truth is actually going to melt away my fears, not cause me. So what Jesus has said has immediately illuminated their understanding, and it's actually refreshed their soul. It's that truth that they wanted truth because they've been chained, they're still being changed, they're still learning, and they love truth. And I believe that all of you hopefully are here because of those things. You've been changed, you're being changed, you're still learning, and you love truth. And when you love truth, God's going to melt away your fears and concerns because you love these things.
Jesus' Jesus's truth increased their trust. Let me say that again. Jesus' truth increased their trust. You know, the trust and obey, there's another way. His truth increases our trust. You can tr- there's a lot of people you can't trust. You can trust Jesus, amen? amen? There's a lot of people I would not trust. There's some people I would never give the key to my house, but there's some of you I trust that much. Like, Take the key. We're going to be on two weeks. Check it. I don't care if you sleep there. I don't care if you use, you care if you use our refrigerator. Other people I'll say, you will never get my key in a million years, ever, unless you get saved. You, and you get saved, then maybe we can talk. But even then, I want to see about a year's worth of growth. Right? But Jesus can be trusted. If you want to trust God more, abide in his truth. Rest in it. Meditate on it. But they express an exuberance of like, now we really believe. Now we really believe. It's just like a little kid that is wanting a certain birthday gift. I remember all our girls' little parties when they were three and five and the the birthday request. And one thing about little kids, and some of you that are grandparents, you might see this with your two-year-old or your four-year-old, they might be expressing, I want this gift. They are hoping for it. They're somewhat convinced they're actually going to get it. And uh, some of you grandparents are going to make sure they do get it. Uh, they're somewhat convinced they're going to get it. And yet, even when they see it, there's this uh, excitement. It's why it's fun to go to Disney with little kids because you see the excitement. They're like, I knew it. I knew you'd get it for me. But they didn't really 100% know. They were 99% sure. And that's what I think the disciples are here. They're like, I, yes, now we know this is all true. They kind of always were there, but not, it was that last to see and is believing kind of thing. Verse 31, uh, yes, verse 31 and 32. Let me look at both of them together. 31 32, Jesus answered and said, do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. So the first, he says, do you now believe? Um, Jesus, the master teacher and preparer of disciples, he builds them up to break them down, and that process continues, right? And that's not unusual because... We know there's T-shirts been around since the 80s, I think Gold's Gym, no pain, no gain, right? Jesus, you know, breaks us down to build us up, but each time he builds us up, it's to a higher level. Even pruning back in the, when you prune that rose bush, it looks ugly at first, but then all that pruning, then it explodes with blooms. And we see that Jesus talked about that with the vine, um, all that. We understand. Some scholars take this question of do you now believe, where Jesus says, do you now believe? Some scholars take this as more that the better wording is a statement of Jesus saying, now you do believe. Some scholars really render that really it's better translated in some scholars' view as Jesus saying, now you do believe. Others see this as, a, uh, as Jesus using this instance to clarify for the disciples that when they have shaky moments in their faith, you ever been there? When they have shaky moments in their faith, to refer back to this burst of faith that they had in receiving the words on this night when they were lifted and said, we're convinced. Either view of Jesus' firm response flows into his, what he says next. Again, as, I refer, as I've referred back to uh, several times, Jesus was perfecting them for the now, but preparing them for the later. 
And in verse 25, he said, the time is coming. Here he says, the hour is coming. Verse 25, the time is coming. Now he says, the hour is coming. It's more specific. In fact, it's a closer, more specified time. But we all get hours of testing. Amen? We all get hours of testing. He said, the hour is coming. Yes, it has now come. It's really close. Now it's, it's actually literally hours away. You will be scattered. There's going to be testing. The genuine faith within them and the burst of faith is not going to fail, but it is going to waver. Not going to fail. Jesus, remember, he said to Peter, I pray for you that your faith will not fail. He might have felt that it failed because Peter's going to have a rough night. He's still going to deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows just hours after this. He's going to think it failed, and Jesus says, no, it hasn't. You didn't mail it in like Judas and say, I'm out of here. You just had a really bad night. And we've all had these where our faith was shaky, but it didn't collapse because Jesus held it. So he's saying, you're going to be scattered they're going to scatter, they're going to run in fear, they're going to have sorrow. They're not going to leave Jesus forever, but they are going to leave him for a little bit, and he's going to be left alone. And yet Jesus says it was preordained that he would be alone because only he could suffer for the sins of the world. He was going to have to do it alone. But he said he wouldn't be alone because he said the Father would be with him. And I know some people might say, well, hold on. Didn't Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? But if you recall... He's praying to God even in that statement. He's talking to God. And he says, it's finished. He's speaking to the Father. He's speaking to everybody. He's definitely speaking to the Father because he finished the mission. Jesus never stopped having communion with the Father, but the Father looked away from the sins, sins that were cast upon him. Last verse, verse 33. You've got to love verse 33. These things... I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. With all that Jesus has said, he now finishes this upper room discourse right here. This teaching, this private sermon, this message to the eleven, the twelve minus Judas, with this punctuation point for them and for us to stand on. It's a combination of encouragement, it's a combination of comfort, a resolute reminder of difficulty, which we don't like those reminders, but it, I'd rather have Jesus be truthful, right? And a promise of joy and victory all in one sentence, all in a single bound statement that you can build your life on, that you can rest your soul on these words. Amen? These words, you can build your entire life on these words. This one verse, if that's all the Bible you had and you were stuck somewhere on the earth and this was the only verse you had, you could go deep and wide on this for years to come. Amen? There's a lot in this. And I only have three minutes left to finish it. So, only Jesus has this level of power and authority. These things. What things? All that he said. All that he's just said, but the whole evening, the whole upper room discourse throughout the evening, are, everything he said is not to trouble them, but to settle them. To give them an inward peace. He's the prince of peace. There is no other source. And he says specifically, you can circle this in your Bible, that in me, you might want to circle the in me, the peace is in him. It's not knowing his name. 
not saying a rosary. It's not doing this or that. It's in him. Yet we know we're going to have trouble. He said, in this world, you'll have trouble. You don't have to wonder. I wonder if we'll ever have trouble. Are you saved? Yes. But you don't have to freak out about it. Draw near to Jesus about it. Those troubles seem, they seem like they can rob our peace, but they actually can't if we're in him. And, I, and that's a process of learning to be in him. You have to abide. The branch has to want to stay abiding. That's back in chapter 15. It can't rob us of peace if we're abiding and remaining in Jesus. And more than that, he says, be of good cheer. You actually can not only have peace, peace is awesome, but good cheer and peace that's like getting both desserts, right? Have you, by the way, this, the statement, have your cake and eat it too, why would you not want to eat it? If you, you know, anyway, that's, I digress. But you could have your cake and eat it. Why would you not? I mean, it uh, doesn't make sense to me. But he's saying you'll get cheer and peace. What a combination. But how and why? Because he's overcome the world. 100% done. He hasn't even gone on the cross yet. He said it's done. I've already, he says, I've overcome the world. Well, don't you have to finish the cross and the grave? Well, yes, but whatever I say I'm going to do is as good as done. You, on the other hand, couldn't complete it, but I can, and I can say it's done even before it's done. Isn't that awesome? So whatever you're going, Jesus said, I can say it's done before it's done. So you can pray like it's done. John no doubt remembers these words, and by the Spirit, he writes the church of our overcoming, and Jesus I put up on the screen, because we can overcome because Jesus overcome. I don't have time to read each of the verses that John speaks of here, but you can see them up on the screen. But John speaks directly to the fact that we, in Christ, become those who overcome. And then Jesus in Revelation 21.7, he says, he who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God, and he shall be my son or daughter. And then Jesus reiterates seven times to the churches in Revelation, in chapter 2 and 3, seven times in the letter to the churches, he says that the individuals that overcome will receive the eternal promises. Brother and sister, we're called to be overcomers. He's not telling you to turn yourself into an overcomer, because you can't. I can't. He wants us to surrender fully to him, and through him we become those who overcome. You can't make yourself an overcomer. You become, Jesus already said, apart from me you can do nothing, same evening. But you can become an overcomer through him. Let, rem- let me close up with these last points. Give me 60 seconds. Let me remind all of us. Jesus came because sin, death, Satan and hell had to be dealt with. They had to be overcome, and he's the only one that could overcome them. Amen? If he doesn't come, that's what he said, into the world, return to the Father. If he doesn't overcome those, we have a problem. So they had to be overcome. But he has said he has overcome those things. Now we follow in his footsteps as disciples. If there's no trials and difficulties, we have nothing to overcome. So the fact that we're told to overcome is because we will have trials and difficulties. He came because those big things we couldn't overcome, only he could overcome. Now he gives us small things. They don't seem small to us. They seem insurmountable. But he says, you're going to have to overcome them through me because you're following my footsteps. If, if there was no trials, there's nothing to overcome. 
you could just sleep on a soft pillow nonstop. Eat cotton candy nonstop. No problems, but no. We overcome through the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Amen. He said we'd have troubles, but be of good cheer and have peace because there's victory in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that we are guaranteed your peace, your strength, your help as we abide in you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to abide in your truth that would melt away our unbelief and our fears. And as we believe and love the truth, our love for you will increase. And Lord, we will become overcomers abiding in you, not striving to be overcomers, but receiving the love of the Father, the power of the risen Jesus to have your peace, to have your good cheer, even for things we do not understand. And Lord, we pray that you continue to mature us, that we would understand and pray from a place of understanding. We ask these things in your name. Amen.